Welcome to this, our second Nolignamon Tortoiseshack special. Nolignamon, a night where the women get together and have fun after all the work of the festive period. In other times, I would usually be getting together a group of fabulous women for a night of food, wine and chats. So tonight we'll do it virtually. We have an incredible panel tonight who are going to discuss with us their hopes and fears for women and women's rights in 22. I'm delighted to be joined by Ajirog Baveon, founder of Black Therapist Ireland, Emma D'Souza, writer, activist and friend of the shack based in Northern Ireland, Anne-Marie Quilligan, social care worker and amazing men care woman, Helen Stonehouse, former co-convener of the abortion rights campaign, special needs educator and queer neurodivergent mommy. And finally, Orla Hegarty, architect, assistant professor in UCD and a critical voice throughout the pandemic. We also have a pretty fantastic audience tuning in live. And as ever, please put your comments and your questions in the chat and we'll incorporate those throughout the next hour. Tony's going to be keeping an eye on that as well as minding the recording. So, Ajiro, could I start with you? What are your hopes for 22? Hmm. What are my hopes for 2022? Um, I think one thing that I got into this year with is to find ways that people of color, especially black people, are supported more in the society. And not just women, women as well, but Mm. people of color in particular. And I have this idea. This is my hope for 2022 that we've built a system where people of color, especially black people, are supported through the hierarchy in whatever organization they're in. So if you have people, if you have children of color, we should have teachers of color and principals, and it should just go up like that. If you're in an organization where retailers are black or people of color, the next level should have representation so that they are supported because I know for sure that in these environments, we can feel we want to help, but the connection doesn't really happen. So I would love to see more support for people of color. Okay. And at any point, if anyone, any of the other panelists want to comment on what someone is saying, please jump in. We want this to be, you know, a conversation and engaged. Um, Anne-Marie, I'm going to jump to you on that. I imagine that's something you'd like to see as well from different perspectives. Yeah, I suppose, um, you know, uh, listen, listening to you speak, I um, I never fully understood how important representation was. Do you know, I knew the words. I knew um, the academia behind it, you know, but I never um, truly felt the, um, overwhelmed by it or the feeling myself internally, personally, because I never... And um, saw people from my community in um, spaces such as um, education or schools, you know, high up, you know. So I, 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 and I suppose I became normalised to that. And I remember, um, so I went to uh, Limerick Institute of Technology, and I remember um, they had facilitated a day where uh, Dr. Hannah McGinley. Uh, was attending in the lecture as a lecturer, you know, and she's a traveler woman also. And I can remember, and I was so excited because I had so much respect for her and I couldn't wait for the talk. And also my baby sister uh, was in college as well at the same time and she was coming down and I was like, yeah, and this is going to be great, you know. And I had so much, like to me, Hannah was like, um, 
a film star, do you know, do you know, do you know, someone from afar, somebody that was really high achieving. And and then when I was sitting in the lecture and I was speaking with her, I became so overwhelmed. Do you know, the emotion just came up through me. And that was me as a mature student, like 35, 36. And I the, the, the feeling of it, it was the, it was one of the best feelings in my life. I was so, so proud. But I then was so, so sad that I had missed out on that for so long, you know. So I I, I, I understood the concept. But when I felt it, um, now I now I understand the importance mm. for the other children, uh, for all children, you know, whether that be children with disabilities, you know, and um, children from working class backgrounds. And and as you're saying, it's, it's, it's not just like within education, you know, if you're going for counselling, you know, like if you're going to the doctor and yes. like I can, as a traveller woman, when I'm working out in my community, I can have conversations with the women or the, the men or whoever that non-travellers wouldn't, you know, there's just the trust there, and there's there's no price on that. Yes, that's at the core of your work, isn't it, Ajiro? I mean, you know, finding black therapists Ireland. That's yes, what you do. It's key to it because we we take for granted. Like it's it's so easy to feel everything has been provided. You know, we have counselling everywhere, we have doctors everywhere, but like um, Anne Marie was saying you don't realize it. Like you cannot see it until you experience it. You can read about it, but you have to experience it. And that's the thinking behind Black Therapist Island. It's really to support people who feel that there's no place for them. At least there's one spot that they can find support. And it's interesting because like, we're actually looking at the potential, the possibility this year, of course, of the first female Taoiseach. Um, so we can even take it back to that simple point of gender and being what you can see. But like I've noticed as Anne-Marie myself, like I've started talking about my own mental illness a lot more in the last two years and having junior colleagues say to me, oh, my God, like you're in that position with a mental illness. Like that's amazing. And it gives them hope. Um, so it, does. it normalizes it. It does, yeah. yeah. And because it is normal, you know, we're all human and yes. it's normal to go through these things because we are human beings. You know, we are, we're not programmed. Uh, we're not a homogenous uh, society, you know. So it, 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 every for me, everything now is normal, you know, because I'm, a person's experience is a person's experience. Absolutely. And I, who am I to invalidate that, you know, and... And I think as well, it comes across, we speak an awful lot about trauma informed, you know, and, and a lot of the time we get lost in the words, but trauma informed, like the first thing, and I learned this from Sharon Lambert, like, you know, I, I adore her, and is a trust in relationship. And, you know, and and that really, it's the, it's the, the first step, but it's the biggest step, you know, and instinctively like if if you're sitting with someone that you can identify automatically you feel safer that's not to say you wouldn't it mightn't always necessarily be the, the, the case but it's just sometimes to take the step even if it's with mental health or going to the doctor or anything like that sometimes or into third level education the, the hardest step is that first step you know exactly. and sometimes if you can feel that you trust that person you know um, and, and that it, it goes a lot 
to making trauma informed communities and societies. You, know, you have to have the trust. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think as well, it's important we take it away from this idea around mental health and health. It should be the society as a whole. Like mm-hmm. you should go to work and it's trauma informed. You know, we, we have a safe space for us to work because, like Anne Marie said, we're not robots. We're human beings. We're supposed to bring ourselves. And if you want to bring yourself, you want to feel safe. And I would love to see, and this is my ultimate dream, where at every level you find up there somebody that you feel safe to go talk to. And that would just, for women, imagine what that would look like. Mm. We're talking about places that we can't get to. But if there's somebody up above you, and then when we're employing people on the next level, we're thinking, okay, we want to take care of these people. So we want to have women here because there are women here. And just to have that hierarchy. So we're supporting it all the way up. Does anyone else want to come in on that? It's a beautiful vision. Yeah, I was just thinking on that point Anne-Marie was making about, you know, everything is normal. Like I think sort of I'm I'm an abortion white advocate, but I'm also an early years educator. And I think one of the things a lot of people worry about, and I also have ADHD and I work with kids um, with autism and ADHD. So this is kind of, I work with kids who brains are messed up the way mine is. And that's not a judgment on anyone. My brain is super messed up. But like you, you see that a lot in parents that they see this fear and this grief almost when they hear a diagnosis. And they're like, oh no, what does this mean? And I was like, means that your kid's brain is a little weird don't worry all our brains are a little weird like understanding that 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 range of human experience is so broad and that that is okay and that it's not a disaster and that everything will be all right is so important Mm. it's one of the things that's sometimes great about working with kids with ADHD when you have ADHD is I I totally get where they're coming from sometimes it's a terrible thing because I'm like oh god I know exactly how terrible this is for you and it's but it's 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 good too you know and so I it's uh yeah so and again I have ADHD which is why my point is tailing off into nothing no I think it's such an important point you know again that obviously early diagnosis like obviously the point is then you can do more with it right um and again sorry I'll keep pulling this back to myself probably because my hopes and fears this year are all around mental illness because of my experiences over the last two years and I've been having a, a horrendous time trying to get diagnosed in the Irish mental health care system and I've now had to go to the UK to get really specialist treatment that's costing me about 150 euro a week um that is available in about 50 percent of Ireland but not everywhere in Ireland so just where I live it doesn't quite happen um and so you know and we know coming out of the pandemic and the impact that there has been on everyone's mental health um particularly and how it will have aggravated those who have actual mental illness and I'm really keen to distinguish between those two terms um you know that's going to be a massive issue um Helen well, yeah sorry no go ahead no go on or go on yeah, no, I just, I suppose I'm really struck by both what Ajiro and Anne-Marie had to say, you know, about, um, I suppose diversity would be the best way, you know, and uh, and, and really strongly hearing uh, that about respect and dignity for individuals and opportunity and, you know, support. But I'm also struck by how important that is. I mean, if you look back at the last crisis we had, which was the banking crash, financial crisis, we all lived it. Um, one of the best, the biggest findings from that was that the lack of diversity in decision making was mm-hmm. um, one of the structural weaknesses and that uh, diversity is the greatest bulwark against groupthink and that kind of closed thinking where people get 
defensive and they don't challenge each other and they just work with their friends and their assumptions and beliefs all reinforce each other. And, you know, so, you know, you're talking about it from the point of view of an individual and their development, but actually the systems that you're not in are missing you (laughs) and missing, you know, all of these other voices who can challenge and bring different perspectives. And I think our whole pandemic and, and to a large extent, our housing policy is really missing all of that. And it and you and it's it's full of holes because of that lack of involvement of people who have loads to say and understand things that other people don't. And um, I would love to, for this year to have a very different approach to housing and the pandemic, where we start to think about what kind of society we want to have in five or ten years' time, mm-hmm. um, and and how inclusive we can be. And I mean that in the broader sense. Um, yeah, because we are a republic and we are equal citizens and it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time. You know, so much of the pandemic has ignored women and children and has ignored minorities and has allowed direct provision centres to still be sources of outbreaks and people in, in substandard housing to be much more vulnerable and people in nursing homes uh, to be more vulnerable and all of the people who can't speak for themselves and aren't at the table are the ones who are shouldering most of the consequences. Yeah, and that, that you know, that involvement and that voice is so key. I'm going to pull it in a slightly different direction because actually the example of that that I often give in class is like one of the debates during the repeal legislation. And I'm sure everyone remembers that horrendous moment when somebody said like that fetuses remains should be buried and that that should be in the legislation. And, you know, you had a female deputy, was it O'Connell, in the debate saying, all right, so when I had a miscarriage, do you want to bury my sanitary pads? Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, just that, like, if it had been just men, Mm. there is a strong possibility. Now, maybe if there had been a man whose partner had experienced a miscarriage, it would be different. But, you know, it's not, they're they're not thinking about it the same way. Their perspective is different. Um, And so, yeah, just even like the rights basis, we have an entitlement to be at the table, of course, and we should be ensuring that. But you're so right. We make better decisions and we we are more considerate and compassionate of alternative perspectives. Um, And we become the kind of country that, you know, a century ago, we proclaimed that we wanted to be. Um, Helen, what are you? I'm, I'm, I'm making a really obvious link there. Yeah. But what are your hopes for 22? So I guess my my hopes for 22 is that we will fix some of the problems that are in our abortion legislation because we do have a legislative review um, coming up, which is exciting um, and also completely fucking terrifying because my I'm allowed to swear. I checked this. Yeah, to yeah, swear. totally allowed to swear. Sorry, <laughs> because I am absolutely fucking terrified that yeah. the current government will do exactly what I expect them to do and make a complete tit of it and absolute balls of it. Um, we've got, and I think that point you're making about whose perspectives were listened to when the legislation was put through is so interesting, Vicky, because a couple of the things that are in our legislation are so pointless. It's pointless. Yeah. For example, if you wanted an abortion, you go to your doctor on Monday, you have to wait until Thursday before that abortion yeah. can start. There's a mandatory three-day waiting period. And that got put in, not because any medical doctor thought it was a good idea, not because the citizen assembly or anyone else thought it was a good idea, but because Simon Coveney felt a little bit uncomfortable uh, with people just being able to walk in and get an abortion. So now you have to wait three days. Maybe um, we should have given him some champagne. First. Maybe maybe we should have just told him, you know, I just I can't honestly. 
fuck all the politicians, yeah. but especially yeah. those ones. But uh, it's just those things where, you know, and that three days in reality, in some cases, has translated into at least two weeks. There are, we did some research on people's experiences, and there were a few participants who went to their first doctor's appointment on a Monday and accessed their abortion two weeks later because those three days add up and add up and add up. So I'm incredibly hopeful that we will get rid of some of those really egregious bits of legislation. Um, but even then, I, I, it won't, it won't fix it. Do you know? I think one of the things that really sticks out for me, and it comes back to to what was already being discussed, is that so many of these these problems are systemic and systematic, and that we won't overcome them just by fixing legislation. Do you know? We lived under yeah. the amendment for thirty five years. We can't just instantly go, oh, cool, that's done. We now no longer discriminate against women and pregnant people. Because of course we don't, you know, everything in our healthcare system to me shows how little we care about women and marginalized genders. You look at the maternity restrictions during COVID, you look at how massively underfunded our hospitals are, you look at trans healthcare, you look at all of these things, do you know? And well, Arla mentioned earlier direct provision. I mean, yeah. obviously the experiences of asylum seekers and so on in that respect of this um, and those in controlling or abusive relationships, yeah. it, it's all just so problematic. And of course, we're in that context where the tide is turning, like we look at the states and see what's happening there. Yeah. Um, and so to kind of maintain this line and push forward is really. Yeah, and I think it's really like pushing forward in a way that like our legislation is so problematic because it still frames abortion as this necessary evil that must be contained. Mm. It's not, there is a right to refuse abortion care and they're baked into the legislation. There is not a right to access your bodily autonomy. There is not a right to make that decision for yourself. Do you know? And that it's just, it's just bullshit. It's fucking bullshit. <laughs> You're like, but it is, it's just, why does the doctor have more right to turn me away than I have to decide what happens to my body? Like literally why that makes no sense. It should not be okay. Or, oh. Girl. Emma, come and talk about the North and respect. Yeah, to this. talk about the North and abortion rights because that's a lot worse as well. Oh Jesus, don't start me. I was just about to say. I mean, you know, we're talking about abortion access. Uh, you know, in the North, we just still don't have the commissioning of services, and uh, women in the North really, um, you know, we are still struggling to get any form of uh, reproductive justice or health here. So really, it's a, a systemic issue. And I suppose it takes me to my own hopes for 2022, which is greater north-south links uh, and understanding north and south because I think a lot of my work um, you know I encounter sometimes a disconnect north and south and a huge part of my work now is the all-island women's forum it's like an all-consuming project that I'm currently doing in my role the national women's council which I love but which is yeah it's a huge piece of work um, and that's really all about building greater north-south links, about peace building and about women across the island coming together to work collectively. Because the reality is a lot of the barriers that we face as women, they are the same north and south. And despite the fact that we are two different jurisdictions in terms of um, the legal system, there are lots of ways that you can work collectively across this island as women to try and strive for justice together. So that's a big part of my work for 2022. And there's lots of policy stuff like we've been talking about. Uh, you've been talking about diversity and about trying to get representation and decision-making spaces. Well, with my other NWC hat on, a huge part of my work will be the local level quotas. We'll be getting the quota in for um, a quota for uh, women on board. So that's other priorities for 2022 as well, just about increasing uh, women at decision-making tables. Um, and yeah, so basically that's that's the priorities and hopes for 2022. And I'm also personally hoping to not do so much work. 
<laughs> That's a good it one. sounds like you're definitely going to do that much work though because that sounds like a lot yeah you That's signed up to an 8pm podcast you're not doing so well on that front <laughs> like a small amount of work. But what I will say there I mean we can flip that as well because like Helen was pointing out obviously the situation is much worse in respect of abortion in the north but you then do have the also amazing mother and baby homes kind of um, plan and what seems to be possibly coming to light there, which is so much better than what we got landed with in the South. Um, And we, you know, like I was just aghast over Christmas at Michal Martin, you know, saying, oh, it's not for government to overturn the report. And so what? The women are just going to have to tear it to shreds case by case by case. Um, But hopefully that's in a better position in the North. Orla, what are your hopes for 22? Uh, small ones like ending the pandemic and solving the housing crisis. But, um, <laughs> it's just little things. <laughs> I'm doing less work, so I don't have to do work. Um, um, I, I, I to go back to the earlier point, I, I would just like us to see reframing how we design problems and how we put together teams to solve them. You know, we, we, we seem to have people already in positions of control and authority who bring all of their own worldview to what they think is the solution before we've even defined the problem or collectively agreed what we're trying to achieve. And that goes for nearly everything we do. Um, uh, that, that there's a, it goes from A to Z and we skip all the middle steps of um, actually thinking about what do we want? How are we going to get there? What have we got to work with? What do people need? What do humans need? You know, and... Um, yeah, I would. I would just like to see, as we've been talking about here, more constant, you know, more involvement, more openness, a lot more openness about how decisions are being made, who's making them, who's informing them, and a lot more voices at the table that are respected for their contributions. Um, and I think we'd all be the better for it. Our mental health would be better because we'd feel heard. You know, a lot of our mental health, I think, at the moment is people feeling unheard and marginalised and then our parents and teachers and hospital, hospital healthcare workers are all feeling extraordinarily stressed this week. Um, but they're also not feeling very hurt, you know. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, where do we start with that? I suppose we start by, by listening to people and respecting their contributions and, and meeting their needs. Yeah, that's such a, it's such a cross-cutting point, right, that all of us with any of the issues um, that we're talking about, like if you could even achieve that, um, we'd be in such a different space. Um, and, you know, yes, it's listening to people, but it's also the kind of work like Emma's talking about, you know, I'm all for quotas, gender quotas, diversity quotas and so on. Um, can you tell us more about that work, Emma, that you're hoping to do in relation to um, boards and quotas? Yeah, I mean, it's one of my hats. So I wear many hats uh, between my my writing work, between my activism work, between the forum and between my actual role at the National Women's Council, where I'm the Women in Leadership Coordinator. Um, And so the work that I'm doing uh, this year in terms of priorities, um, we have a couple of priorities. One is rural women will be one. We'll be having a rural women's conference uh, for International Women's Day, which I'm particularly excited about because I myself am a rural woman living in County Fermanagh and I'm very excited to be able to highlight some of the issues that impact rural women, um, you know, which is stuff that doesn't get highlighted that often. But in terms of the quotas, um, there's two main quota campaigns that we're working on at the moment. One is uh, getting more women on boards. And the reality is the pace of change is just too slow. 
you know, like the voluntary target led approach, it just isn't getting us there quick enough. And like, why would we want to wait another 25 years if a quota mm. can do it in three? Like, it just doesn't make sense why you would take a slower approach. So that's my 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 view of it anyway. Um, and we are progressing that now with a 40% quota. Um, Deputy Emer Higgins has got a bill, a private member's bill that she's bringing forward. We're supporting her in that bill. So it will progress on from there. We hope there is quite a bit of cross-party support for it, which is always encouraging. Uh, but then, as you know, the system can be so slow, so it may take a while before that bill actually progresses to where we need it to be and is actually actionable. But still, good progress. Um, and we're hoping to do uh, an event on that as well, probably in April. We had to postpone it due to the pandemic and fingers crossed we won't have to postpone it again. And then the other part of the quota work that we're doing is um, around local level quotas. So we already have the national level quotas, but we don't have them at local level. And the reality is that's the pipeline to national level politics. Mm. So we are at the moment forming a coalition of other NGOs and organizations and groups across the country and academics to come together and form a coalition to sort of build a campaign up around trying to get local level quotas. The thing is, is that there's actually a little bit more political pushback to local level quotas because there's this idea that apparently, you know, because there has to be a certain amount at the national level, it will just naturally happen and women will suddenly be there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's the key quota work that I'll be doing this year. Well, I mean, isn't that the point that, like, if you actually do it at that baseline, you know, you make it harder to exclude women at the national level. Um, and, you know, we saw all the systemic ways they found to manipulate that system in the last election. Um, yeah. Um, now I'm just thinking as well, when I was on the policing authority first time, it was actually, I think we had five out of nine were female. Um, so it was a very unusual board in that respect. That's, uh, that's great. Uh, actually, uh, that's very rare and yeah. always nice when that happens. I was thinking about the um, flags, identity and culture uh, committee that we had up here in the north recently, and that was 12 men and one woman. Wow. Well, you know, what do women care about? Flags and identity. They're very like, masculine you know, and things. And culture you know. and identity. Surely we have better yeah. things to do like washing <laughs> up. Do you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Minding all those babies we have to have. Exactly. Because, yeah, we don't have access to abortion. Anne-Marie. Yeah, I just, this this is kind of off the, 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 the mark now, but, um, do you know, I suppose, um. A lot of the time, so I'm a social care worker and a lot of the time uh, people will describe me as an activist and things like that. And that's fine. I, I would never consider myself to be a, an activist. And I'm kind of in the midst of an existential crisis uh, since before Christmas. I actually deactivated my Twitter and things like that because I became very conflicted where so many uh, good things are happening within my community. Like we have a really uh, strong um, young traveller women uh, going places outside of the NGO sector, which is which is very, very important. And, and that is em em empowering. And two days before the day before Christmas Eve, I came home. I, 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 I left work um, and I had to leave a woman and her children that were infested with rats, that had no access to running water. That I had said the portaloo was full. The county council were gone on holidays as well. And her little children were there. And I got so upset because her little girl had come out to me. I, but you know, you know, when you see a little child, beautiful little child, her skin is so perfect. And she had a little bit of makeup on and she was so beautiful. And she was so ashamed. And I am so ashamed 
I am so, so ashamed, you know, and it's very difficult because I have a great life, you know, and I have a, a lot of privilege and I, 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 and none of us, we all do that. We're sitting here tonight. We do. Mm. And we can't apologize for that. You know, it is what it is. Um, and we can be thankful for that. We have little girls in hotel rooms. Mm. We have little girls, you know, in direct provision centers. Now we're progressive women and we're in a progressive society. And I look back, I was thinking of the interview with Tammy Tiernan and Bernadette Devlin. I was just thinking of her, Emma, Emma, while you were talking. And I think back on strong traveller women throughout my community, throughout the history that sacrificed so much so that women like me can sit in these spaces. And they had nothing. You know, they had absolutely nothing. And they changed so much because they were fucking angry. Mm. And they were right to be angry. And so I look back at women like uh, Christy Donahue and strong traveller women and they took the law into their own hands. And sometimes I wonder, like Christy Donahue uh, years ago, and I won't go on now about this, but it's just to make the point, like where I'm trying to figure out what I might do. So Christy Donahue, it was on a, a halting site years ago. Herself and her family pulled up. They were being moved from A to B, A to B, constantly being evicted by the county council. And uh, a group of men, professional men, county council, guardian, things like that, waited one morning until all the traveller men on the site had gone to work. And they came in with diggers, they came in with Angarda Shikana to tear the children and the women out of their place to live. They had nowhere to go. And in a split second, she gathered the women on the site and they had nothing, you know, they, you know, and she said to them, pick up the rocks. She aligned them the way that you would soldiers and they bait them in off the site. And they stayed there and she secured her place of living. And I'd be thinking, you know, I know there's a place for academia. If I had to do something like that today, I'd be worried I'd lose my guard of it as a professional. And I mean, like we're talking about little girls' rights here, children's rights, you know. So I was in a meeting as well before the Christmas and uh, it was with COVID Women's Voices and they mentioned um, bringing the country to a standstill, you know, and all women going on strike. And as soon as they mentioned it, I said, I can't go on strike because I work with very vulnerable women. And I I would be lying to you if I said to you, I'm going on strike today, because if those women needed me to go into work, I'd be going into work, you know. So, like, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Do you know, like, what are we going to do? If we really wanted to change, we don't have to wait for quotas. If we really want change as women, like in this country, uh, we should be voting in more women like Lynn Rowan, uh, Eileen Flynn. Of course, I'm extremely biased, but this is what we need. And and not just because they're working class women, but they get it. But when are we going to step away from behind our computer? We're very safe here behind our computers and on social media. Mm. Now, we are the women with the privilege. We are the women with the education. Mm. So what are we going to do, you know, for the children? I'm not saying that we get violent renting because I wouldn't win a fight if I was there. <laughs> but, but there has to be, there has to be another way. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I like I'm completely with you and I I struggle in my work, you know, and I've done, let's say, state boards and state bodies 
and come out of them so endlessly frustrated by my experiences. And you wonder then, are you propping things up? Are you giving endorsement? Um, are you making things seem valid and appropriate? Um, and yeah, these are like, it's a very real question. Jero, I see you nodding away there. Do you want to come in? Yes, yes. I, well, while we're all talking and, you know, it, it all seemed to have ended with the system and things are systemic and it's difficult to change things that are systemic. But we have to also remember that it's people behind these systems. And for us to figure out how to walk around things, we need to find ways to reach the people, you and me, just like Anne-Marie saying, like, it's us. It's no other person, or not, nobody else but us behind the computer, feeling safe in our homes. It's us. And it's a commitment that we need to make to ourselves as women in the diversity community. Like, we need to own these things ourselves and look out for these opportunities because they're all around us. And every one of us should take one thing and commit to it. It doesn't matter what it is. Take one thing. And if we're all con committed to it, it changes the system because the system is you and me. Society is you and me. Yes, there are some things written, but we're so blindly following things that have been written that Many of us don't even see the mm. barriers. We don't even see it anymore because we're just doing the runs every day. I think we all, it would help if we all step back and become the loving people that we are and genuinely begin to look for places that we can fit ourselves in and make the difference in our small areas. And together, all these small things that we do together, we begin to impact the system. Yeah, I and mean, we could shut down the country. I'm very <laughs> radical here tonight now, like, but I tell you the truth. Why can't we shut down the country? Why? Let's fucking do it. I'm like, I'm angry all the time. I'm literally, there's a tiny hulk inside me waiting to get out. But, I'm with you. But, like, yeah. Yeah. But, but as, as a society, what, what is stopping us from bringing things to a halt? We're not happy with the government. I don't care who's in government to tell you the truth. I do. Well, obviously, I do now. Like, but I did, you know, and I don't want to be saying, oh, God, they're all the same. But listen, why can't we as a people shut down the country until we get what we want? Well, we could, but the, question, the, the problem would be that what we, what we need is so much in terms of vast across like a million different areas. Like yes. there's, so much, there's so many systemic, systemic barriers. Like you'd have to you know, deal with direct revision. You have to deal with representation of women. You have to deal with childcare, healthcare. Like these are huge areas of work. In fact, the whole country really as a system needs to be reformed. It needs to be yes. completely changed. We talk about Ireland being a progressive country, but when you look at a lot of the systems in place, it isn't really that progressive. Well, it's only really started down that direction in the last 10 years, and that's not a very... But what about taking the earlier point, shut it down until we get that diversity of voices on the decision-making tables? I think yeah, so. I mean, look, we love a bit of a riot in the north, you know. We do. We do like a bit of protest. Don't get me wrong. But uh, Marla, where are you coming in there? Yeah, I, I will. I suppose Anne Marie was saying like, why, why don't we just down tools? I suppose. Um, but 
You like so so much of the work women do, they see as essential, and it is essential. You know, I mean, it's women who are predominantly carrying the burden in the health services and in education. They're the front line. They're a lot more women than men, um, and and they're used to being practical people and getting on with it. And the more they have been practical and got on with it, the more has been they've been taken for granted, as I see it. You know, and. And that's maybe that is our problem as women that we tend to, you know, have to feed the children and have to get out of bed in the morning and have to go to work and have to pay the bills. And we don't really have the luxury of sitting around lobbying. And, you know, um, you know, a lot of the strength of lobby groups in this country is that to come from people who have time to meet in the afternoons, you know. Um, and you know we know we know the kind of sectors they are, and and we're not those kind of people. You know we we do a full days of work before we go to work, and then we do another day before we get when we get home. And um, in in between, we often support other people in in their work. And um, it's very hard for us to to step away from those responsibilities because we do take it personally. You know? And that you know it's such an important point that this isn't just at an employment or state level that's so you know we know the statistics around how much of the caring labor and that emotional labor that women in Ireland do so much higher than across most of Europe um and I think there's a real sense of that through the pandemic people just being like really at burnout point at the moment and not having that extra capacity or ability to to push things but I was thinking Helen when it when Ajiro and Amory were speaking as well because like repeal was a really good like what Amory is saying about you know what am I doing what's my place in this like repeal was such a beautiful example of there are different places for everyone and you know play to your strengths and do what you can do and it kind of chimes with what Ajiro was saying as well I think no I think it does and I and I think sort of it's it's always such a really interesting thing because when we think of repeal I think we also a lot of us think of that poster that's behind me like that kind of that sort of March to May 2018 kind of thing but it's it's it was so much more than that like it took decades to get to that point do you know and I think it's sort of that that it's so hard to get to a point where you can suddenly get a million and a half people on your side do you know it's Mm. it's it's so and it feels like it all happened in a rush at the end but it, it didn't you know and it was such a long time of working and networking by you know for basically 35 years since as soon as the eighth came in. And I think at that point that you're making, Amaria, of like, you won't go on strike because you can't, right? Because you, your job is too important. And so many of us can't because we, you know, I can't go on strike. I have a toddler. <laughs> like, I, you know, she still needs food. Like, you can't, there's a there's jobs that we do. And it is exactly as I said, predominantly as women, and whether it's because we're mothers or because we are care for other people in our family or we care for our home, that we can't stop doing. So we can't just down tools because we're not going to let anyone else fall. And in some ways, that is changing the system all the time because we're showing one of the things I try and do as a parent is try and show my kid a slightly better way of doing things, right? Of showing, mm. you know, and I think it's one of the things that we can try and do those of us who have kids and those of us who are parents is to raise them to see that the world is going to be a better place. But that's the long game as well, do you know? They're, but we can't, there's a there's a chunk of work that we can't step away from because other people depend on us, do you know? And it's it's that care work, it's that education work, do you know? I see it is. If we down tools for two or three days in this country, two days, we can, we can, Helen, for two days. You can for one day. Yeah. Gerald, did you want to come? I'm not saying on any specific issue. I'm just saying. This happened in Iceland at one stage. Was it Iceland? Yeah. 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 One day. One working day. 
And it doesn't just have to be women. But I'm just saying, like, I, I'm not giving out to you now. And I, as I said, like, I had to deactivate my, my social media and everything before the Christmas because I, I I really, really find it very hard to look at these little girls. Yeah. yeah. I know. May God help them. Mm. May God help them. Because the, the government's not going to help them. And it, it can't be just about one group of children from a specific. It's all the little girls because it's, it's across the board. Mm. It is across the board. And so I think activism has changed. I don't know. Maybe I'm very nostalgic looking back in history and I'd be thinking of Countess Markovic and and this and that and whatever. And I think um, I think if there's a topic that comes up that's serious enough, I'm not going to name it. But if I had my time back again in that meeting and I will be back in that meeting and when that will come up again about down and tools. I think we can we can do it's one day, ladies. Society, it's not just ladies that will have to down tools, it'll be men. What would we be asking for? I know this sounds like a mm. dumb question, but mm. when we down tools, what would do we down tools and then pick them back up the next day? Or what would be what's gonna make us take our tools back? What will what what, what will it take before we put our tools down? Do you know I'm in a community where eleven percent of my people die? by suicide, you know, 10% of our children die by the age of two. What's it going to take for my people to come out, you know, and, you know, so I, I'm only, I, I don't know. Like, well, I, What I, would it be for you, Amory? I'm ready. I'm, I tell you the truth. I'm, I'm ready now. I'm at this stage No, but what would game, make you pick them back up again? What would satisfy, hmm. you know, what would be your starting point of satisfaction? Yeah. I, I think I would like to see, um, it was, it was back again for the COVID women's voices, um, and, and, and the pandemic, uh, the way we still don't see the representation, um, and the, the burden that are on women. I would have, I would have down tools for the teachers. I would down tools for the healthcare workers. I would because I feel they have been exploited and I feel I, you know, as now there's so many other things I would down tools for, but this is just coming to my head at yeah. the moment. Of course, I would uh, automatically down tools for the living conditions of uh, people from my community, but society wouldn't down tools with us. So there would probably be a hundred of us that would down the tools. And did you know that that solidarity is not there yet? Yes, it's there on social media, but the reality is it's not there within society. And, and that's the reality. And please God, that will change. But if it was now, if it was tomorrow, I would down tools for the healthcare workers. And Jesus Christ, we should have down tools last week for the teachers. Yeah. And what would they have to promise before you pick them back up again? What does what the healthcare workers specialists are asking for? Because I'm not uh, yeah. expert yeah. in healthcare. Do you know, like look at everything that Orla, if like I, I like Orla, if they had only listened to you last year or whatever, you know, the fact that we're still hearing about wash your hands, wash your hands, when we know now that it's a respiratory illness. You know, I think um, in ten years' time, maybe in fifty, or, or however many years' time that children are going to turn back and say, uh, there was Ola Hegarty telling everyone, you know, yeah. I, 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 I air, clean air, you know, and yeah, filters, you know, how, how will we answer to children that we didn't listen to the science? But you and know, we put like teachers even, and children into, sorry, we put teachers yeah. and children into these dangerous environments. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and but, but, I mean, whatever about like, 
it's two years since a lot of us were storming everyone we could think of in relation to when the pandemic hit and the people in direct provision. Because immediately, we hadn't really thought of the nursing homes, but immediately we could see that that was going to be really vulnerable situation. You know, when they talk about vulnerable people in the outbreak reports, they're not vulnerable people. They're people in bad buildings yeah. and bad housing. And they're not vulnerable people at all. If you put any of us in there, we'd be vulnerable. Um, and, you know, and I and like still, like when you look at the outbreak reports today, it's still happening. And that that is like a fixable problem within a week. Like we've empty hotels all over the country. Um, and that's what we were saying in March 2020. And here we are. And and the same with people who are in traveller accommodation and have been really vulnerable to a lot of outbreaks. Um, and uh, and the nursing homes now we're into the third wave in nursing homes. Like, what will it take? How many people have to die? And and we're you know we're storing up huge future health problems in our children. You know, the stats out in the UK about um, long term illness in children post COVID is absolutely shocking. Tens of thousands of children are still ill a, a year later and are getting repeat infections now. Kids in Ireland who were infected in November are getting infected again in January um, and being put, told to go into school. And worse, if you don't go into school, you don't get an education. So it's the most vulnerable children who are being excluded because maybe they are the 10% who have asthma or whatever. And then it's the children who are in uh, housing, with in homes that have less money, who don't have access to Wi-Fi and devices and privacy in their bedrooms and heat in their bedrooms and all the things that are needed for them to try and do education at home. Um, and, you know, it, it is, the pandemic doesn't hit evenly, which means that you don't have to spend money everywhere to fix it. You know, and in the past, the, the all of the public health initiatives about clean water and, and decent housing wasn't just about poorer people getting better homes. It was actually about society, because if yeah. you didn't get rid of the pockets of disease, everybody got it. And if you had people living in tenements and in slums, they, it just kept churning disease into the entire community. And, and until you fixed the poor housing, you just had these engines of disease. So we, we have all these little engines of disease everywhere for two years. And there's been no action to stop the places where we get 13 people infected in a bedroom or a kitchen in a direct provision centre. And, you know, and it's still happening for two years and nobody's saying, hang on, if we didn't have that, that would be 200 less cases in the next two months or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm very frustrated, I have to say. I mean, we did this podcast a year ago today. And we were all feeling very depressed, but we were looking forward to the vaccines. And the case numbers were a quarter of what they are today. And um, it's it's incredibly frustrating, I have to say. But we have a, a more general oh, problem. Negative now. <laughs> no, no, but like there is yeah. a wider problem, because I was thinking as you were talking, like of, of, of government in Ireland and not listening to the actual expertise and knowledge that we have. And for instance, I was thinking of this, you know, on the third. 30th of December, I was at um, the memorial rally for George and Kendrick's killing and listening to his sister, Gloria, talking about their experience over the last year. And I got really angry because 
I've been writing myself for 17 years about the problem of use of force among the guards. Um, and others have been writing for a long time before that. And nobody listens. And, you know, we don't take it seriously and we don't deal with the issue. How long have people been prob- pointing out the problems of traveller accommodation? How long have we been talking about reproductive rights or the issues in the North? And, you know, it's just... That's really frustrating when you're meeting, you know, this unwillingness to hear the expertise or like I was aghast this morning at how quickly um, Mary Lou McDonald's comments on um, the the civil service were like turned into her being unpatriotic or something. And, you know, like anyone who has done any work near or in the public, I'm a public sector worker and I believe it's totally stagnated and a mess, you know, um, and yet she just gets attacked for saying something for which there's a real evidential basis. I'm going on my rant now. I'm going to ask everyone in a second and maybe I should have done it the other way so we don't end on too negative a note, but just if you've one particular fear or concern about what might happen in the coming year, but Tony, could I check in first? Cause I know the comments have been going, but I haven't really got a chance to um, keep on top of them there. Is there anything? Yeah, there's some brilliant comments as usual. Uh, obviously yeah. Jana's in the, in the audience and Jana's uh, has, has went back to work today as a school teacher. And she's raised the fact that, you know, Look, I I don't know, guys. We, we, Marie, you said it. We, we'd all, we'd all support our teachers at this stage, but it, it, it is, it is something like to ask people to go back into a situation whereby, like, we have to, we have to face the irony of the, the, the minister for education saying, "I'm not going in. I'll do this on Zoom, but you all go to work tomorrow morning," um, and we haven't put in the mitigations that were and. And we haven't shown enough support and we've we've actually fallen for the I'm gonna say divide and rule and Jana might um, be upset with me later, but but she's right. She she made that point. Um and Don raised a really important point about that. We need the we need the um the voice of children in this. I mean, we don't hear enough from the actual the students, the young students, and that I think that's uh, that that's really important. But but outside of that, yeah, no, um, we're we're the 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 just as very similar on Twitter. If um, Amory's willing, Amory, we're all going to war tomorrow, and thank you for for leading us on. <laughs> no, because I like I was. I mean, I'm going in to teach a class of 135 next Monday. Really looking forward to that. No guarantees that they're vaccinated or COVID certs or you know anything. Um, but I was also thinking this morning, you know, Amory, what you were saying, and we see this morning, Eva Grace Moore just for doing the work that she's doing being, you know, hounded people suggesting she's having affairs with people just to get stories. You know, any woman that kind of seems to manage to step above the parapet is is, is being dragged down a bit. Um, would anyone like to jump in with something that they are a bit worried about or concerned about for this year? Northern Ireland election. <laughs> Lord, Lord, help us, uh, because it's only the first week of January and the rampant sectarianism that is being expressed in the north around us uppity nationalists getting any kind of education and by nationalist mm. that's just anyone who is not a loyalist is a nationalist yeah um, so you know there's definitely going to be a pretty difficult um next six months in northern ireland in terms of just the the political um the issues that we're going to be facing in terms of sectarianism and the side of that as well is that we're you know women who are going to be standing in this election will as is expected face even greater levels of abuse and harassment and sexism and misogyny and it's just it's going to be a very challenging six months now at the same time i'm hopeful that we're going to have a successful election it's going to happen when it's meant to happen 
Um, I'm really hoping that we're going to have a huge electoral turnout because we only have about 60% on average. And I cannot help but think how much better and how much different the political landscape landscape could be if more people came out to vote. And I know it's difficult whenever, you're, you know, it's easy to feel disenfranchised in a place mm-hmm. where the politics is, uh, you know, so divisive. Um, but it really could make a difference. So I'm going to be pushing as hard as I can to try and get people to see the value in their vote because everyone's vote matters. Um, and I'm hoping that we're also then going to see greater uh, gender diversity in terms of uh, a gender balance in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Currently, Sinn Féin is the only party to have made it to 50%. Um, many of the parties are not running um, a gender balance ticket, but hopefully by the time the election comes around, there'll be a few more women in there. So it's a, a worry but also a hope for 2022. It's an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, anyone else got a, a hope or a fear for this year? Or a fear or a concern? Yeah, I'll go. My, my, my fear is that the repeal, the review of the abortion legislation will change nothing, that we might get one teeny change, but that we will still see hundreds of people traveling north and south. My fear is also that, Northern Ireland will continue to not have commissioned services. I think it's really important to point out they have great legislation on paper, just no one actually doing abortions. So it doesn't, you know, it's just complete mindfuck of a situation. Um, uh, Yeah, to my absolute fear is that nothing will happen, that we will get politely told to fuck off back into our corner and to wait. Mm. And then I'll just have to start burning things down. Um, and, And yeah, and I think my other fear is that we, that even though we all know, we all agree that we have taken this huge burden and that there are, as Amory has said very eloquently, little girls getting hurt every day and that it is unacceptable. It is wholly unacceptable in a society that claims to be progressive, that little girls and little boys and kids are being treated like this all the time, but that nothing will fucking change. My fear is that we will be in this situation next year and that we will have just seen more people die, more children die, more children become impoverished and become hurt and that we will still be here and that those systems won't have changed because I just don't see it happening. I wish I did. So on the first point, if you voted for repeal, you need to contact your TDs and really push, um, really, really push. Ejiro, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, I think I would say my fear, it it would be how much more we can take with when it comes to our mental health. Mm -hmm as a community globally, to be honest, a lot of things are happening. But when you look at our community here in Ireland and the lack of needed resources or or what we need to help us go through this, I guess I'm just concerned how much more we can take before, I don't know, what will society look like when so many of us can't go to work for whatever reason or our kids and it'd be interesting to see you know what the kids are gonna what they're taking I think they're quietly assimilating things and it'll be interesting to see what all of that looks like in future and um, not so long future because um, they're so closed up at the moment there's no outlets at least outlets that support them in the way that they should be supported. And my youngest went back to school today and we had this really long, well, not really long, but conversation around going to school and not going to school. 
And I want to keep her home. She's in fifth year. I want to keep her home because I want to keep her home. <laughs> Five of her friends have COVID. Um, and she doesn't want, of course, she doesn't want to have COVID, but she, she's not going, she's going to school. Her friends are not there. And she's asking us, why is she in school? And, and she wants to be at home, but then she's not getting the education that she needs. So there's just so much complexity around everything that's going on. And you look at it, how much more can we take would be my concern. And, and I, why, sorry, can I just add to that? And why are we the ones negotiating these protections with our children and putting them in a position where they, at a young age, are expected to manage their own world? You know, it, I mean, it's almost like we turned off all the streetlights one day and we said everybody gets a torch. Oh, and some of you can't afford batteries. You know, you can stumble around and some of you are too small to know how to shine it and where to walk. You yeah. know, like we don't accept that when our kids go to the cinema that there's no fire exit and, and they yeah. have to bring their own fire extinguisher. And we don't accept that if we go into buy a burger and chips that we have to go and take a sample of it out to see is it safe to eat or that... If we run a tap that we have to get the water tested or that if we drive other people are don't have headlights on their cars like we you know we have collective things we spend money on as a society for the benefit of everybody because it's more efficient and because we can then all live a more you know we, we can be protected in our day and we don't have to worry about these things but when it comes to the pandemic it's like everybody is out for themselves and survival of the fittest and you know you're talking to small children about you know you remember to do this and you remember not to do that because nobody above them who has undertaken you know and we've we've human rights commitments in Ireland to protect um our people from epidemic and endemic disease where's that gone you know so I, I would really like this year for us to step up and say no it's not good enough that people are left and and those who have more resources feel protected and are living pandemic free in a lot of cases and work from home and larger houses and flying in and out of the country and going to restaurants and whatever else. And that, that so many other people are living the pandemic in the most extreme way of, of isolating for two years with vulnerable children and people in their families and terrified of their own health, even to go into a shop. You know, and like that's that's not who we are. You know, I don't think that's who we are. We have made second class citizens of so many people in this. And I think that point, like linking that with what Ajiro was saying, is like how much of it can we take? Mm-hmm. You know, there's I I certainly grew up with a lot of people saying things like, Oh, kids are so resilient or they won't remember. But actually, if we're gonna be that trauma-informed society, it's about you know, realizing actually you are shaping their brains and how they work and how they think and how they react and behave and feel in all of those moments. And you know, this will leave it, it, it it's its scars on that next generation very viscerally, I think. Amory. Oh, sorry, is your gone? No, no, I just said absolutely, but go ahead. <laughs> Amory, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the final fear. <laughs> um, I suppose, do, do, do you know what, what I really would like to see is, and I'm a political, I'm not a member of any political party. I would like to see our politicians lead. I don't care about, like, Sinn Féin and Putin, is it, or Russia, or each, you know, these, um, um, dramatics, you know, it's pure, it's theatre, you know, and I would like to remind our politicians 
that they are politicians, they are in positions where they are clean. they are not social media influencers. Mm. You know, I would like them to forget about their egos now and their likes on social media. I would like to forget about, and that's for all politicians across the board. Mm-hmm. I would ask them to have a bit of dignity and show and have a bit of integrity. We're in a pandemic, you know, and as a country and as a people, we are relying on you and they are really showing us for what they are on social media and their behavior and particularly on Twitter, you know, the politicians and it needs to stop. Mm. We need leadership. And every time they come out with these stories, all different parties trying to undercut each other, what they're actually doing is they're instilling fear in, in me, most certainly, because I know that when that's where they're concentrated on uh, um, pulling the rug from underneath another politician, they're not focused on their work. So I would like them to earn their money and I would like them to lead and I would like the charades to stop on social media and get us out of this pandemic and, you know, instill a bit of security and um, comfort back into the citizens of this country. Really, I would I would like to see proper leadership now. I think and that links back. Well. I'm, you know, truth, I'm tired of the spin. I'm really tired of, you know, um, um, statistics and data being misused to prove something or to shore up something that was already decided. And the lack of trust then when things are proven to be wrong or misleading in how they're presented. You know, all that erosion of trust is also damaging our mental health and and our kind of collective spirit of pulling together. Um, trust is is very hard to re-earn when it's lost like that. And, you know, I, I we we can't afford to spin this. We have to be, we have to deal with the reality, not what we'd like it to be. We'd all like it to be better, but it is what it is. And, um, you know, I, I would like more, just more clarity around that so that we can trust people are understanding the problem and doing their best. You know, nobody's expecting anybody to get everything right. We're in new territory here. Um, but, but you know, it's important that we do feel that we can trust the people who are making the decisions. Can I just what check, is, does anyone in the audience want to ask a question? Um, sorry, whoever was going to talk there, go ahead. But if if you're in the audience and you want to ask questions, just pop your hand up and we'll get to you. I'm, I'm interested in what can we do as women, as individuals? Like, what can we do? And this is just open because I'm asking myself the question as well. You mm. know, what, because waiting on the politicians, God, like, mm. i everything she said is, on point, but it's so beyond anyone's control that it's almost like it's almost like a waiting game, which brings the question: What can I do? How can we, as women, make the difference that we want to see? Well, there's modeling, right? There's being that person, right, and which is where we started earlier on, and the importance of that, like modeling the behavior and 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 the type of society that we want. But then we come back to Amory's call to arms, right? Are we going to have a revolution? I I thought you were actually on about us becoming models. I was thinking (laughs) to get one. Solid plan. Yes, let's all become models. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think you got the look for it, so why not? I love it. Why not? (laughs) I think you've, you've got the hair. Yeah. You touched on that before, Jira, of like we can when we see something that needs doing, we can try and do it. Like I yeah. think it's sort of 
I don't know about anyone else, but I've spent a lot of the last two years just in my house. And I think when you do that, you look very in on what's on your four walls and what's your little family and your little bubble of people. And I think we need to start looking out again because there's a lot of people that fell down and fell through cracks. And we need to look, check in on our communities, you know, which all overlap and intersect as they do and don't and see those little ways we can help because that matters too. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Those, I, yeah. I and also, I think that... Um, we have to use the systems that we have and the tools we have available to us, you know, and I say that as someone who was just a, a regular person who ended up getting caught up in a situation with a, a legal issue with my husband and then ended up spending five years in court against the British Home Office and eventually changing UK immigration law. And I was just one person with my husband. We were just two individuals who did affect meaningful change that did have a positive impact on other people's lives. So there is, I think, there is an ability to affect meaningful change. And, and a big lesson for me from our own experience was that each individual does have the ability to affect meaningful change and that you just have to, to, to know that you can do that and really take that, you know, whatever it is that you feel passionate about and just run with it. And what we did really was we used a, a strong social media campaign. We used the media as a way to try and get attention on this injustice. And we just worked the politicians and managed to, to get somewhere with it. Can so I, I think there are ways to affect meaningful change. And I think that activism has changed, but in a way that we can still make things happen. Emma, Emma I'm sorry to come in and I know I should shut up, but I just want to make a point. You made, you you pointed out, and we spoke about it on the Sunday shows that you regularly come on. Thankfully, I love having you on as a guest but somebody some of the stuff that's happening in the next 24 hours potentially in the uk makes it more difficult for people who 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 suffer from let's just say you know and you know i'm not a big believer in passports and identity and i i'm a bit i'm a bit of an open borders freak um but you you pointed out and there's been no coverage of it in in the republic i want to say none whatsoever yeah. outside of your your tweet this change so I'd, i i would like you to comment on that before we we whatever we however we wrap this because i think it's important it gets mentioned it's a significant change and it threatens a lot of people who are currently um active and living and contributing in this society thank you tony yeah i suppose just to bring in then it's the um the borders and nationality bill that's currently going through is being debated in its second reading and in the house of lords the bill um, address has a lot of issues around um, citizenship. And what it's actually doing is it's expanding the powers of the British government to be able to remove British citizenship. And it can do that to people who are dual citizens, who have an entitlement in law. So even if you haven't claimed citizenship, but you have an entitlement in law to another citizenship, you then are vulnerable to this change where you can be deprived of British citizenship and you can that can be done without giving you notification. So it's a very short period of time to be able to appeal if your citizenship was removed. But if you don't know it's been removed, you can't appeal and the deadline passes. So what's been happening around the coverage of this particular bill is that there's a lot of focus on how that's going to disproportionately disproportionately impact those, you know, from a minority ethnic background. And that's 100% true. It It is a racist law and it will be used in a racist way. But what hasn't been covered is how it will impact people in Northern Ireland. Everybody in Northern Ireland has an entitlement to Irish citizenship. And therefore, those in Northern Ireland who would just consider themselves to be British citizens uh, are actually entitled to Irish citizenship and therefore are vulnerable to these changes in legislation. And there has been zero coverage of that. And of course, it also impacts you know, people who live in the rest of the UK who are dual citizens. It impacts people who are getting their Irish passports now because of Brexit. Now they also have two citizenships. 
So there's this whole cohort of Irish citizens and Northern Irish citizens and the Good Friday Agreement in there too, just to add complexity to it, that's just not being picked up by me at all. It's fucking insane. Sorry, my re- I have no filter on my face and how I react to things. But hang on. Sorry, can I just ask a clarifying question? Um, so is this people who are entitled to it, but who have not necessarily claimed it? Yeah, so That's it's coming from, so it's not from um, like the Shamima Begum case, right? So yeah. the argument in that case was she had an entitlement to citizenship and therefore she wasn't being rendered stateless, right? Whereas in her case, they actually argued that even though I am legally already an Irish citizen, I couldn't have not have British citizenship because then I would be stateless. So they what they're really doing is they're weaponizing citizenship to suit the political agenda of the current conservative government. But it will have lasting implications on like potentially millions of people. Now, I don't think that that provision would be used to mass revoke citizenship of people in Northern Ireland or any other cohort, but it could. You know, the reality is there will be those who are vulnerable to these legislative gaps, to these regulations. And that's not great when you're dealing with stuff around citizenship. You know, you're meant to be able to citizenship is a right. So it's it's definitely concerning that they're making moves to remove access to these things. I wish it fucking support. I am British for clarification. I wish it, I was born in Britain. I live, it's not important right now. I wish it fucking surprised me. But like, that's just, that blows my mind because like the whole point and the two cases, blah, 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 you can't just make people stateless. You can't just be like, cool, you have no country now. Fuck off. Like that's unacceptable. Well, we're no, we're no strangers to citizenship issues in Ireland and the children's cool. referendum. Um, you know, we'll I know, we back there. Kids who are stateless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, we are going to wrap up. Um, that's definitely something, you know, as Tony says, in the next 24 hours for everyone to keep an eye on. Um, I think there's, you know, it's it's been a really powerful conversation, both in terms for like what we are entitled to automatically. We shouldn't even have to demand it from our state, from our leaders, but also, you know, that checking in with ourselves. Are, are, are we being the citizens and the members of society that we want to be? Are, are we taking, because I saw this in, in, the, in the comment, that we have to act if we want these things to change. But at the same time, like being aware of the, that, you know, the well is pretty dry at the moment in terms of reserves. And I think there is, we're entitled to be, you know, I saw somebody saying like, I've become very insular. I think that's a part of it, that we only have so much energy at the moment. But hopefully as we come through COVID, some of us still have some of that energy um, to give to, to achieving this change that is so clearly needed. A huge thank you to our powerhouse panel of Ejiro, Emma and Marie, Helen, Orla, thanks so much to the audience for the engagement. The, the comments were flying. And to you, if you're listening at home, um, thank you so much. As ever, please support the work at patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshock. I'm also going to give a quick plug for a special Echo Chambers podcast that went out this morning with Camilla Fitzsimons and Sinead Kennedy on the unfinished fight for reproductive rights. So that's a wrap for tonight. Take care and let's hope that some of these wishes come through in 22.